I invite you, before we ask our pastor to come and share the word with us, to turn in, the, in your Bibles. It's Galatians chapter 3. This is the word of God. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And he announced that the gospel, he announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Now clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to you and your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of the transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that that, what, that 
so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for your servant, who will now come to share that word with us. Open our hearts, we pray, that we might hear from you. In your son's name, amen. Yeah, welcome everybody. Um, good to see you. If, you, if you're new uh, around here, uh, welcome, special welcome. Um, we're starting a new series. We're going to look into um, Christian ethics. We're going to look at how Christians should live. Um, and we are going to do that by looking at the Ten Commandments. But before we do that, I just um, the reference to baptism here reminded me that I have a request um, from one of our young people to get baptised. Um, so given that that's in our mind, I just want to throw out then um, the invitation. If you're a Christian, uh, if you're trusting Christ and you've never been baptised, then the question is, why not? Um, and the second question is, would you like to do something about it? Um, and we will uh, try and plan that. Well, we will plan that, uh, God willing, um, by the end of the summer. Also, um, there's a little book um, called Ten Words to Live By. You'll have seen it before. I haven't got it to hand. I'll, I'll get them out after the service, um, which is a useful little explanation of the Ten Commandments. Um, but really practical, really simple. Easy, easy read, um, but it's got some practical suggestions. So, we're going to do some uh, Christian ethics. Um, tr traditionally, I guess, uh, Christians talked about three aspects of the Christian life as being um, devotion, doctrine, and discipline. Um, doctrine we're always doing. Doctrine was the tradition of the Apostles' Creed. We would say it's our statement of faith. Devotion uh, traditionally was the Lord's Prayer. Um, we looked at the Lord's Prayer, and discipline um, was the Ten Commandments. But there's a problem. Next slide, if we can, Ian. The Ten Commandments are those ten foundational statements that the Lord gave to Moses for the people of Israel after he'd rescued them from slavery in Egypt. So they're found in Exodus 20. Uh, that's the first time. They're restated again um, in Deuteronomy 5 um, when the people of Israel, uh, they've been going around the desert for 40 years um, and are now about to enter the promised land. They're restated in Deuteronomy 5. Yes, people are reaching for the sermon notes. Um, there are some down there, some on the windowsills. Um, and the, the red words come up um, on the notes. So there are, the Ten Commandments are 
a good place to turn to. And many books on ethics uh, are based around them. I've got this really big book here um, by Wayne Grudem, and it's a helpful book in many ways, in most ways. And he um, organises his book around the Ten Commandments, but there's a problem. There is an issue that we have to resolve first, and it is this. Simply that sometimes the New Testament looks positively on the old. Sometimes it seems to look negatively on it, even to the extent that times it seems to suggest that it has ceased to be relevant. Now, surely the Lord himself is, is logical. We are uh, men and women. We are beings, logical beings made in his image. Surely the Lord himself is logical and has given, given us a logical revelation. Jesus is, after all, the logos, the word of God incarnate. And the Bible is the word of God written that centers around Jesus. So surely the Lord is consistent. How are we going to understand this? Let me just give you a couple of examples of the problem. So um, there are times in the New Testament it seems to look on the Old Testament um, positively. So you'll know this scripture really well. We've, we've looked at it. Um, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's Paul speaking to Timothy. All scripture, and he's talking now primarily about Old Testament scripture. And yet some commands from the Old Testament simply don't apply. So we could go, for example, to Colossians 2. Paul says, it's Paul again, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is, is found in Christ. So on one hand, the New Testament is saying all scripture is God-breathed, which is true. On the other hand, it is saying that these aspects of the law were shadows predictions, uh, objectified prophecies, as it were, um, of Christ. And yet other parts of the Old Testament, they're reapplied with a twist. So Jesus, typically, Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. How are we going to pick our way through all of this? Well, thankfully, the, old, the New Testament doesn't just give us a problem. It gives us the solution. And the big part of that solution, and I just want to point you towards it, is in, is in Hebrews, letter of Hebrews, chapters um, 7 to 10. Um, the writer uh, has an extended argument uh, of the relationship of the New Testament to the Old Testament. We haven't got time uh, to go all the way through Hebrews 7 to 10 today, but let's just pick one highlight that it says that the old covenant is obsolete. The old covenant is obsolete. It's a big statement. If you remember, God uh, always deals with his people by means of a covenant, by promises, sovereignly given promises and directions to his people so that they can live in his place under his blessing. So there was a covenant with Adam and Eve. It's God promised to them uh, of being with them and a place for them to live under his blessing. And there was a rule, only one rule, which is don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was a covenant with Abraham. God simply said, I will, uh, I will be your God and you will be my people. And there was a covenant with Israel 
through Moses. God's place was the promised land that he was going to give them. And uh, the conditions for blessing were to follow the law. The Ten Commandments and the law associated around it. But we've gone one side too far. We've just got back one in. So when the New Testament says that the old covenant is obsolete, as Hebrews does, it is talking specifically about the covenant with Israel embodied in the law of Moses. And in fact, you can see it here in Hebrews. The law, and he's talking about the law of Moses, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. But Hebrews then says that the, that, that covenant the covenant with Israel through Moses, the law of Moses, is no longer in force because it was a shadow, a predictive shadow of the realities that were to come in Christ. So that starts to give us the beginnings of, a, of an answer. But Paul spells this out in, in Galatians 3, and I want us now to turn to um, Galatians 3, if you haven't got it open. And we haven't got time to go through the whole chapter this morning. And I just want to give you enough, really, to, to convince you and to give you a flavour uh, of the argument of here about, about what Paul and what the New Testament writers are saying um, about the Old Testament. And Paul makes some really big statements in Galatians 3. I encourage you to read it again later in the day. God gives his spirit, Paul says, when we believe and trust in Christ, not by obeying the law of Moses. I'm sure you know that's true, but it bears saying again, I'm sure if you're a Christian, you know that this is true. But how did you become a Christian? You became a Christian when you looked at the cross and you saw Jesus there and you said, yes, that is God um, come in human form. And yes, he has died for me and I believe and trust in him not least because God raised him um, from the dead. So when you became a Christian, um, you believed. You didn't become a Christian by obeying the Ten Commandments. It's really obvious, isn't it, at one level, but it bears saying again. And so Paul can say, those who have faith like this are children of Abraham. And they received what was promised to Abraham. And what was promised to Abraham, God said, was his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit to come and live in them. And Paul says, what then? What about the law of Moses? Well, the law of Moses, he says, it came 430 years later. And it was only ever a temporary measure to restrain the worst kinds of sin. Verse 17 and verse 19. If you think about it, if that was the only law, it doesn't actually, the, 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 the human part of the law doesn't actually give you very many restrictions, does it? Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't murder. Though the coveting one, I admit, it's a much harder thing to keep, isn't it? So Paul says in the midst of, of this chapter, that the law of Moses was only in effect until the seed, until Christ came. So actually the law of Moses is only in effect until Christ died. And actually when you think about it, that's why Jesus keeps the law of Moses, because it's still in effect. 
while he's alive and until he goes to the cross and, and nails it to the cross. It was in effect, so he kept it. He did all righteousness. The things um, that he condemned were all the additional um, accretions to that that, they, that the, the rabbis and the Pharisees had put upon the law that they added in. And Jesus kept the law until he died. And when he dies on the cross, it's, it's nailed to the cross. And it dies with him. And so Paul says the law of Moses was a kind of guardian until we could be justified by faith in, in Jesus. And it couldn't impart spiritual life. The law of Moses cannot impart to you spiritual life. But now that you do, when you believe and trust in Christ, then God gives you, does, God does impart to you new spiritual life. And he does send his Holy Spirit to, to, to live within you and you no longer need the guardian. So let's try to be clear. Let's try and sum that up. When Jesus comes, the law of Moses ceases to apply. But the promise to Abraham of righteousness by faith and the reception of the Holy Spirit is intact and it applies to you and I. We receive the promise that was made to Abraham. We have a new means of justification. Justification is how you get right with God. And it is faith in Jesus. It is faith in Christ. You cannot achieve rightness with God through law obedience. And we have a new way to gain spiritual life which is faith in the promise of God, like Abraham. In the, in the midst of that chapter, Paul says this amazing statement that God uh, preached the gospel in advance to, to Abraham. So what was the law? It was like a kind of, you think of a kind of like an Edwardian household where they had a few servants and you might have, or I guess in, in years, centuries before that, you might have had a governess or, or somebody whose job it was um, to kind of teach the kids um, and, and also walk around with them, you know, take them out places, um, make sure they, they, didn't, they didn't misbehave. And the law is a bit like that. This word uh, for a guardian is a bit like somebody who teaches. Um, the, law was, the law was like a governess. It was kind of like it, it, it restrained... Um, so if, if the kid's going off and are misbehaving, the, the governess grabs them and says, don't go there. But what was the aim for those kids? The aim was when they grew up, that moral teaching was embedded in their hearts and, a voluntar- and then acted upon voluntarily from an inside conviction outwards. And so the law is a bit like that. The law is a governess. The law is there to give you a bit, a bit of a smack if you went too far. Um, but it never changed the heart. When Christ comes, you have the offer of the Holy Spirit living from the inside, and the essence of that law is applied inwardly by the Holy Spirit so that it comes outwardly, voluntarily, and cheerfully, and empowered by the Spirit. Spirit does what the law could not achieve. So we're left with, what do we do then? 
with this Old Testament revelation? Well, as we've just said, it's just this uh, part that involves the law of Moses that is obsolete. The bit before that contains the promises to Abraham, and as we've just seen, they've come true in Christ. But let's try and just draw a few principles for understanding the Old Testament. Next slide. And actually, the answer to this, thankfully, is let the New Testament authors guide you. Not only do they seem to create a problem, they give us the answer. And the New Testament tells us this, that the Messiah has come. The Messiah promised in the Old Testament has come and offered a final once-for-all sacrifice upon the cross, and that was Jesus. And that sacrifice is done. And the only thing that ever has atoning value throughout history and time and space is, is the death of Jesus upon a cross. So the priesthood of the Old Testament and the sacrificial system, they're, they're fulfilled in Christ. But actually they do tell us about Christ because maybe we wouldn't understand him fully unless we, unless we saw the Passover or unless we saw uh, the lambs being sacrificed uh, until we saw perhaps, um, right of Hebrews says, how ineffectual those sacrifices were and how often they needed to be um, offered. Law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Not the realities themselves, Hebrews said. Need to understand going through as well, something else has changed. God's people are no longer a, a separate earthly nation. So obviously laws for civil government in the, old, uh, in the Old Testament, they don't apply to the church today, but they may still as give, give us wisdom for organizations and for government. In the New Testament, we're told to obey the secular authorities. The church is, is no longer a state. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, Paul says, for there's no authority except that which God has established. Third principle, Gentiles no longer have to become Jews to be saved. That's good news, isn't it? And the circumcision, which was that Jewish marker, is a circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not in the flesh with a knife. Person is not a Jew is one outwardly, Paul says, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from people, but from God. So that's gone as well. And then some of the outward markers of being a Jew in the people of Israel, under the law of Moses, seem, to be honest, a little bit arbitrary. Don't wear mixed fabrics. It's a command that doesn't apply. But even the dietary laws, they don't apply either. And these markers, I guess, which were an outside, and, and the reason I think they were given was so that Israel would be distinct. They would be distinct from other nations. What... What makes you distinct now is it's not some outward marker. It is your holiness. It is your love for God. Shown in your, shown in your love for his people and shown in your love for your neighbours uh, around you. We read in Mark, didn't we, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, that Jesus says, don't you see that nothing enters a person from the outside can defile them? It doesn't go into their heart but into their stomach. And then Mark in brackets says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And finally, fifth principle, God's laws are now written on the hearts of his people by the, by the Spirit. 
not on um, tablets of stone. So more is expected. A greater godliness, a greater Christ-likeness is, is expected in the New Testament. Interesting, when Jesus is having a debate about uh, divorce, he says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So we see that principle at work, especially in um, the Sermon on the Mount, that God has now given his, his spirit, written his laws on the heart, and so more um, is expected. And we will work these five principles out as we work through uh, the Ten Commandments as, as ten areas of, of Christian ethics um, over, the, over the rest of the term. But for the moment, I want to just think about how does this apply for our obedience, our godliness, our, our ethics in practice? And I think we can say a few things. New Testament obedience. Your ethical life, your, your morals, what you do in practice cannot be outward conformity. It cannot be simply outward conformity. It cannot be a performance. By definition, it must come from the heart. It must come from the heart because that is how New Testament obedience works. God has given you his spirit and his spirit writes his laws upon the heart. It must come out of the heart. If you have an obedience problem, then you have to tackle the heart. Why is my heart wrong? What, what am I loving more than I'm loving Christ? More than loving God for what he's done for me? And actually, when you're practically dealing with sins, and the first song talked about sins and addictions, and the answer to those sins that grab us uh, and, uh, and addict us, I think, speaking from experience, is that you have to love that fellowship that you have with God more than whatever that thing gives you. This precious sense of being right with God, this precious sense of assurance, which I think one writer called it, what do they call it? The, the kind of four courts of heaven. That precious sense of assurance has to be bigger than this this temporary sense of whatever it is you get out of, whatever it might be. Gossip, drink, porn, you know, all the stuff. So yes, it is better to act your way into a feeling than it is to feel your way into an action. I'm not denying that. But obedience has to come out of the heart. New Testament obedience cannot be guilt-driven cannot be guilt-driven, cannot be a form of self-flagellation. Guilt is, it is not just a, a poor motivation. Practically, I think it is, an, it is an inappropriate motivation, Christianly speaking. 
Because he's being forgiven. Being forgiven. Whatever you've done is, is cancelable simply for the asking. New Testament obedience can't be guilt-driven. If you're a parent, you know, do you, do you love those times when you, when you tell your kids to do something and they go off, their heads hung and they, all right. That brings joy to your heart, doesn't it? No. We're to be motivated by the joy of being forgiven. New Testament obedience cannot be reluctant, cannot be foot-dragging. There's a thing that Paul says um, when he's talking to the Corinthian church uh, about taking up an offering uh, for, the, for the Jerusalem churches. Uh, he says to them, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves uh, a cheerful giver. And I think that applies to, to all our morality and all the things um, we do for the Lord. That you give it as you have decided to give, uh, you give it out of a changed heart, and you don't do it reluctantly, and you don't do it um, out of compulsion, for God loves, God loves a, a cheerful giver. That said, it cannot be achieved without the Spirit's help, and it cannot be achieved without being informed by scripture so we have to get to grips with, with this question if we're not under law uh, what is the role uh, of the bible um, in our ongoing obedience well let me suggest these things uh, next slide just for the moment the bible then has a has a new role if it's it's not the law of moses uh, it's not laid down to, to condemn you or to fill you with guilt. So it's not, the Bible is not a, a, a script for a performance. Oh, I must learn my lines. It is not a nagging governess to drive guilt. Oh, I must keep her sweet. It's not a threatening um, headmaster with his, with his cane in his hand. Oh, must avoid punishment. It's not a party pooper who, who tells you to turn the volume down. Oh, I mustn't upset the neighbours. It is the sword of the spirit. It is the weapon, or perhaps we, we ought to say the instrument, that God uses to change the heart. The writer to Hebrews says it's like a double-edged sword. And I imagine that's because it's like the, the, the sharpest thing he can think about. We might have said... Uh, the scripture is, is a razor blade or, or it's a scalpel and Hebrews says this the word of God is live, alive and active alive and active sharper than any double edged sword slash razor blade slash scalpel it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, of the inner part of you. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Not even the, the, 
the inner secret things that you think you've kept buried, even those uh, inklings which you only occasionally admit to, but God sees. Everything's uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him towards we must, to whom we must give account. So this, so you become a Christian by trust in the promise. God gives you his, his spirit. God's spirit writes the law upon your heart. But then as you come to the word of God, the spirit uses it to, to slice really precisely and cut to the heart, literally, of those issues which are going on in your life. So they go together. Not because they're two ends of a spectrum and we're trying to keep a balance, but because that is how they work. Spirit uses the word as a tool and the word is dead without the spirit using it. So yes, that razor blade comes and it, and it brings conviction of sin. Then the scriptures, the spirit on the scriptures are your optician making you clear seeing, but not guilt. Guilt is, is momentary until you've confessed it before the Lord. Scriptures are there to, to bring encouragement, to be a friend that warms the heart. Scriptures uh, under the ministry of the Spirit are there to bring you understanding. It's your counselor, your psychologist, to straighten your head out. And the word empowered by the Spirit brings you joy. Joy. And fundamentally then, Spirit and word work together to empower you to do what it says. This is so important, so frequently missed. Spirit and word work together to empower you to do what it says. So when you come to the word and it says, don't gossip, not only does the spirit bring you conviction, if that's something you've done or in a moment you see really clearly something you've done, but in that moment of reading, the spirit also empowers you to do, to do it differently. So that's your reason for coming to the scriptures. It's not simply to be informed, but it is to be empowered. Empowered to be different, and in being different, to walk more closely with God and know him better. So when you have the spirit, it is like someone being inside you, living inside you, making better choices than you would have done otherwise. Spirit is like a super conscience. It's like someone living inside you who makes better choices than you would have done. But it's also like having someone else inside you. It is actually having someone else inside you, stronger than you, making possible choices you could not have followed through on otherwise. What a great thing Christianity is. Let's try and sum up. Try and come back to where we started. Ten Commandments then. They are a useful summary of ethics, which is why we're going to use them. 
but they are an insufficiently blunt instrument. That's wrong, isn't it? They are a bluntly insufficient instrument, I think is what I meant. You know what I mean. They're insufficient for the task because they're a blunt instrument. They're applied from the outside to restrain the worst of behavior, like the safety barrier when you're driving down a mountain road. A perilous road with a big drop on one side and kind of like a rocky thing on the, on the other. And, and you're really grateful for some barriers as you're driving along because if you, if you go off the road, you kind of bounce into it and, it and it comes back. And because of that, we'll use them. We'll use them to look at some areas of Christianity. But now, you and I have the Spirit of God living within us guiding us cheerfully down the middle of that mountain road without ever touching the barriers. Guiding us down the middle, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So I have one application for you this week, which is to be happy is to be happy. You've got to be happy, haven't you, that the, that the burden of the law has been taken from you? Haven't you? Please look at least smart, slightly happy. <laughs> that burden of the law, that blunt instrument has been r- removed from you. You stand here this morning free from it, the chains have gone. You've, you've been set free. And the spirit has been given to you. Cheerfulness. Go away this week. Go away and be happy. Please. Okay. Go and be happy. Because that cheerfulness is is the solid concrete base on which you can build a house of, of Christian behavior. Or you can build a rocket launch platform on which to establish a new way of pleasing God in your everyday behavior. Let's pray and we'll sing. Father God, I pray that by your spirit this truth will creep up on us this week as it has crept up on me uh, in the last 24, 48 hours. We're not, we're not to be guilty, to feel guilty, not to be reluctant. We don't do Christianity by being beaten around the head by the law. It's gone. It's gone. It it condemns us no more. It is nailed to the cross and and we delight that that is true. And maybe we can't believe it. But please, Lord, by your spirit, make us believe it this week. Give us a cheerful uh, cheerful spirits that that rejoice uh, that we're no longer justified by the law. Justified by faith in Christ. Pray, Lord, this will be a slow burner that, uh, that builds into a, a fierce and fiery joy in our hearts. Pray for those of us who, who are, have naturally miserable dispositions. Lord, that you'll change that. Your spirit will get to those miserable hearts and actually radically change how we think and live. 
and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.